Okay. Thank you. Well, it's very nice to see you all. And uh, for many years, in the month of Elul, I've done a series of classes to get us um, spiritually ready, whatever that means, for the high holidays, because Rosh Hashanah falls on the new moon of Tishrei on, which will be Monday night, September 6th. <clears throat> and we are now in the month of Elul, which is uh, understood to be and practiced as the month of preparing for the new year. Um, so let's see, the broad strokes, uh, as many of you are familiar, is that um, the theme of Rosh Hashanah is Teshuvah, which means returning or repenting or responding. And it's the act of coming back to ourselves to right relationship with our loved ones, with the creator, as we understand it, with, um, and, and so it's, you know, it's kind of a much, I mean, New Year's resolutions in the secular culture are a kind of pale um, reflection of what's intended and is the mitzvah for the Jewish New Year, which is to really re, uh, uh, um, revive and restore ourselves into the space that we'd like to be living from. And uh, what I'm going to do with you the first couple of weeks at least is uh, something that I do every year that has just become my custom. And again, if you're new to this, I'll explain it to you. Uh, ever since I started here in Woodstock, I have used gematria, which is Hebrew numerology, um, as my kind of um, um, throwing the throwing the dice for finding out what uh, what might be some directions for me and for us this year. And I use that every year in a beautiful way. It's like opening the Bible to a page and pointing. But the way Gematria works is that every Hebrew letter has a numerical equivalent. And um, therefore, the number, uh, every number has a word or many words or phrases associated with it. The um, most famous gematria that everyone knows is chai. Chai means life and yud is 10 and chet is eight and it adds up to 18. So that's why when you give chai, you give $18 or a multiple of 18. That's a gematria that's just in the popular culture that many, many people would know about. Okay, so uh, Karen Levine and I sit down every year with an old computer program she has. We put in the Hebrew year. In this case, we're entering the year 5,782. And the way the years are counted 
the 5,000 isn't usually included. But in fact, the Hebrew year is written, there are no, in traditional Hebrew, there are no numbers, no numerals. So the Hebrew year is written as letters. Taf, Shin, Pei, Bet is this year. Taf is 400, Shin is 300, Pei is 80, and Bet is two. And they add up to 782. So this year, the year 5,782, the 5,000 is not usually accounted for. And so we write the letters for 782. So Karen and I put the letters for 782 into her gematria program that then spits out every word or combination of words in the entire Bible that add up to that letter. And then I cull through them. The vast majority of them are non sequiturs, nonsense, the end of one verse and the beginning of the next. And I just let them go. And then these gems pop out that I grab. So this is not scientific to say the least. It's, uh, uh, but it works for me. It's like a, just a wonderful way to get verses and phrases from Torah that I then say, okay, these are the ones I'm going to focus the con community on and I'm going to focus myself on uh, for this Rosh Hashanah. And it's just what I do. So uh, I want to share with you the ones that rose to the top for me. And I'm going to share a document and we can, I can also, uh, I'll be able to send you this document, but it's not, it's, it's actually, I didn't get to refine it as much as I want. Um, and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And then we're gonna go one by one through these phrases and the context perhaps that they come from in Torah and uh, take our time and discussion is welcome. Uh, so I'm gonna share my screen. Five, seven, eight, two. Rabbi Ellen, is it clear? Okay, good. Is it large enough? Well, I've got you spotlighted so people can make your picture and the text. They can vary it on their own screens. Oh, good. Okay, yes. On your screen, everybody, uh, most computers and tablets, there's a, there, you, there's a, if you, uh, there's a little two, vertical hash between me and the document I'm sharing. And if you drag it in one direction or another, either the document gets larger or I get, my face gets bigger, uh, depending on which way you go. Okay. Here you see at the top, Gematria 4, 5, 7, 8, 2. And here are the letters, Ta, Shin, Pei, Again, for the uninitiated, these hash marks here are used whenever Hebrew letters are being used to show a number instead of a word. So you know that 
this means, this is going to mean a number. It could also mean an acronym in Hebrew, uh, but it also means a number. Tav, Shin, Pei, Bet. Um, and so let's see the first one that came up that just, that adds up to 782 are these six words. Elohe Avraham, Elohe Yitzchak, Elohe Yaakov, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, why such a long phrase? Well, look at all the Alephs. Alephs are only add up to one. <laughs> hey is only five, bet is only two. So there are a lot of low, uh, low value letters in this. Uh, where the ratios, the ratios worth 200 and uh, the kuf is worth 100. So all of these together add up to 782. And I thought, what a great phrase. It comes, it gets used in this format in Exodus when uh, God is sending Moses and says, I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And I'm telling you, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. But those of us who are familiar with synagogue services, where do we know this from? Feel free to unmute yourself or put it in the chat either that you want. The Amida. That's right. Um, let me put these there, there. Now I got us all, now I can see my chat and you and the paper, good. Um, yes, the Amida, the, 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 the central prayer of the liturgy says, Baruch atadonai Eloheinu velohe avoteinu Elohe Avraham Elohe Yitzchak Elohe Yaakov. So I've been thinking, first of all, the first thing that this spoke to me about was thinking in terms of this new year uh, as a, a time to affirm our Jewish heritage with pride. Uh, that certainly is part of returning because we return to ourselves, we return to God, we also return to the, our Jewish community on, on the new year. But there's also this beautiful, famous Hasidic teaching about why it says Elohe Avraham, Elohe Yitzchak, Elohe Yaakov, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I believe this teaching comes from Baal Shem Tov. Um, and uh, why they, he says, as always in, in, in uh, um, Jewish commentary, if every word's important, in Torah and has a special significance. Why didn't the Torah just say Elohe Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why does it have to say Elohe Abraham, Elohe Yitzchak, Elohe Yaakov, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Now, some of you may be familiar with this uh, uh, midrash, and if you want to unmute and answer the question. Why does it say, or put it in the chat, why does it say the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? I welcome your 
guesses because uh, there's there's the answer the Baal Shem Tov gave, but maybe you have an answer too. Anybody, feel free. I'm, I'm thinking because each person has a different relationship with God. That's exactly what the Baal Shem Tov said, that you inherit, and, and Sarah says, affirming God's covenant with each, very nice. And Rob said, is it because everyone interprets God in different ways? That's right. The, 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 the Baal Shem Tov taught that we inherit a heritage from our parents, but our relationship with God is something we have to develop ourselves. And Abraham's relationship with God was not the same as Isaac's relationship with God. Isaac had to grow into his own relationship with God so he could say the God of Isaac and Jacob the same. Um, and I just, it's true. It's all, it, interestingly, it's all the same God, but the relationship depends on each person's personality, our questing. Yes, Paul, Paul, Paul elaborates on this and saying they prayed at different times in the day. Um, to illuminate, to illustrate that, Abraham is associated with praying in the morning because it says, and Abraham got up early. And Isaac is associated with the afternoon because when Rebecca is coming to meet him on a camel, it says, and Isaac was meditating in the field in the afternoon. And then Jacob is associated with the evening uh, because of um, uh, he's, um, when he runs away from home, it says, in the evening, he encountered the place, meaning the place where God was. That's when he has the dream that night. So in a nice midrashic way, they each had a different time of day uh, when, they, uh, when, when they prayed to God, which again points to a different relationship. And uh, Blaise says it can't hurt to repeat the name of God over and over either. That's right. It's got a nice poetry to it, doesn't it? And uh, um, so, but what I also wanted to say is that, um, interestingly, Isaac, the God of Isaac is referred to by Jacob as Pachad Yitzchak. Um, oh, wait, Paul says, is it more through merit of our forefathers that God allowed ch the children of Israel into Israel? Um, that's a little too concrete for me, Paul. The, the thing we talk about our ancestors is that we are here because, and God is with us because of the suchut avot, the uh, merit of our ancestors. And I, I come to like that phrase because it's, it's a humble way to approach this. We would never have a connection with God uh, had it not been for those who kept our heritage alive before us. We, we don't stand on our own. We stand on the merit and the shoulders of our ancestors. But of course, some people uh, take it quite literally that without the righteousness of, um, yes, yes, without the righteousness of our, of our founders, um, uh, 
we couldn't even stand uh, before God. Uh, so that's a, but, but we have to be careful from our context in getting literal. Every tradition I know honors ancestors, worships ancestors. Who do you talk to when you're looking for, when you're saying, you know, we call out to, to mom or uh, we, we, we rely on, um, I would say in our um, American culture at this point, in the worship of youth, in the breaking with traditions, in the uh, kind of breakdown of traditions that is so much of Western civilization, we lose something crucial in terms of um, honoring, naming, knowing, relying on ancestors. And I think that's part of the Jewish tradition. So, um, but I was saying that uh, uh, Jacob refers to Isaac God as Pachad Yitzchak, which means the fear of Isaac, which led many commentators to say that maybe Isaac's relationship with God was, uh, was kind of forged in the near sacrifice of him that his father put him through. You know what? And, and so each person's life experience also dictates how we might relate to the ultimate. And uh, there's a lot to think about there. I think I read, says Barb, when God said this to Moshe, he said this in the voice of his father so that he would not be afraid. Oh, that's beautiful, Barb. I didn't know that one. And Rebecca says, in addition to each of us having a unique relationship with God, it is a reminder that we can enrich our relationship with different dimensions. Well said. Well said. Uh, so this line, um, just in the repetition, leads us to this combination of experience that we both inherit and rely on our, what we've received from our ancestors, and it doesn't become our own until we go through our own maturing process and come to our own conclusions. Um, repetition is like a mantra. That's nice place. Elohei Abraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov. And of course, contemporarily in our prayer book, we had Elohei Sarah, Elohei Rivka, Elohei Leah, Elohei Rachel. Yeah, we had the mothers as well, uh, which has always obviously been missing. Abigail, the God of love, the God of law, and the God of truth. Beautiful. I love triads. I love that. Thanks. That's beautiful. So towards the new year, um, what I want to encourage everyone to do is to... Oh, let me say something before that. I think one of the things we suffer from is that we may never get through our own rebellious phase um, because inevitably or almost inevitably we're going to reject at some point our parents axioms until we're older and then uh, maybe start taking some of them back again. Um, and 
to reject an idea of God and then to proclaim fiercely that one is an atheist, for example, wants nothing to do with that religion stuff. There's something about it that uh, obviously as someone who's embraced the religion stuff, uh, there's something about it that uh, feels like maybe an assignment would be to delve into what you mean by God, not what other people mean by God. And then it can become that, that what you understand from that search can be what you mean when you say God. And maybe as my teacher, Richard Hirsch says, what, what Judaism asks of us is not so much as to accept an idea of God, that this is what God is, but instead to promise ourselves to be in a relationship with God. And I love this distinction between a definition and a relationship because a relationship does not require a final answer. It just requires our genuine engagement with the ultimate mystery around us. If we wall ourselves off and say, no, it's meaningless, or no, it's, I'm not going there. I'm not gonna engage with the infinite mystery out of which our lives emerge. That's a cop-out. And um, it means we're missing out on something incredibly grand. If we promise ourselves to be in relationship with the mystery, well, relationships themselves are mysterious. Uh, and the, even the people we know best, we're closest to, we don't know we don't, we don't, we can't, we don't have a definition of them. If we do, we've limited them to our own concept and they're much greater than our concept. So I think one of the other teachings I'm getting from this phrase is that each generation and each of us is obligated as a Jew to enter into relationship with the great mystery and to come up with some way of living in relationship to that mystery that ennobles us, that humbles us, that um, gives us a sense of our place in the cosmos. Okay, thank you for letting me share that. Here's the next one that came up. And a sense of community to do that too. Yes, Paul. Lotisna, do not hate, adds up to 782. Given the ubiquitousness of gratuitous hatred in our culture right now, um, this one jumped out at me 
and it's a phrase, you know, it's not just a random assortment of words to do not hate. I can't think of a better direction for the new year. We do not have to indulge our hatred, our, our inclination to hate people. We don't have to do that. It doesn't mean we're not gonna have hateful thoughts. We're not gonna have tantrums about what's going on in the world. We're not gonna wanna just exclaim, believe me, <laughs> about people's uh, positions or choices of behaviors or uh, uh, strange ideas of reality. Um, this means not to live there, right? Um, Paul says meet halfway. For me, it's a little different. Um, oh, De uh, Rebecca says that's a great blessing to give to our country for the new year. Thank you. Each of us is going to have to figure out how to model. And the way to model it is moment to moment. Um, because... That's all we got. And I wanna look with you. Oh, a dear friend says, don't park there. Hey, Bonnie, that reminds me of something um, a therapist of mine said uh, when, uh, I'll just say it and you'll get it. When you get on the down elevator, you don't have to go to the bottom floor. <laughs> That's right. Isn't that great? Yeah, don't park there. You don't have to do that. You actually have the power to push the button and get off that damn elevator and like regroup. So, <laughs> so that's my motto for this year. When you get on the elevator, you don't have to down elevate. You don't have to go to the bottom floor. Uh, oh, Abigail, this looks well said. People are more than their misinformed ideas. We all have much in common. Not necessary to hate when we disagree. Well said. Well said. You know, I was in um, uh, um, California with my daughter in rural California, and we were clearly in uh, Trump country. Um, and that didn't mean that didn't change every, every interaction we had was pleasant and lovely. And um, it reminded me again that people are more than their positions when you just can meet them, even if it's just with a waiter at a store, a waitress in a restaurant or, um, it, was, it was very reassuring uh, uh, to, to have those, those contacts with people. Uh, Paul, there's also, maybe you don't want to get killed, but we weren't there to talk politics, Paul. We were there to buy a meal and to uh, have a nice interaction. And uh, we are more than our politics. There's no question about it. Our politics may cause great damage. Politics is, I mean, I, I'm not Pollyannish at all. I'm actually, I'm actually pretty pessimistic about the future right now, but none of that changes the commandment to not hate. Um, 
And uh, now I want to look at the context um, of where that phrase comes from, because it comes from the holiness code in Leviticus. It says, do not hate your fellow citizen in your heart. Now the Hebrew says achicha, your kin. Um, but in ancient Israel, kin uh, was your the political structure. The stranger lived with you, but was not a citizen. And the Torah is, as, as you all know, the Torah has laws of um, how you're to treat the stranger, which is with complete humanity. But the laws are slightly different than how you treat your countrymen. So I translate citizen. Do not hate your fellow citizen in your heart. Rather, you must take action to interrupt their sinful behavior. Now, that doesn't mean getting in a political argument. A lot of good that's going to do. The only action I can think of right now is to vote. Right. Um, and to support the positions that I want to support in uh, our civil society. Uh, otherwise you bear some responsibility for their sin. So this is the great um, concept of the central concept of Judaism, which is that our personhood does not exist in um, a vacuum. It only exists in the context of the community we live in. And the hate here in this context about hating someone in your heart was the hate in Leviticus of hating them rather than trying to stop their behavior. It's like looking at that idiot and hating them. Don't indulge in that behavior. Rather, do something. If there's someone you know well, and someone you have the context of relationship with, let them know that they're doing something that's harming themselves or someone else. Don't just sit on the sideline and say, what an idiot. If it's someone that you don't have a relationship with, then going into their face is only going to make a fight, right? So either build a relationship with them or work in the civic, uh, in the civic arena so that the hateful behavior can be uh, mitigated, right? Um, if you don't, according to the Torah, you bear some responsibility for their sin. Now, I want to steer away from the big collective more towards the people we know. The Torah understands that it's our job, and it says in the previous verse, you cannot stand idly by the blood of your neighbor we have a job to interrupt. If we don't try to interrupt harmful behavior, we bear some responsibility. Um, do not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your fellow citizen. In other words, taking vengeance and bearing a grudge are two other possible responses to someone else's misbehavior, right? You can get back at them, or you can just carry with you how much you hated the way they behaved. So none of that is what's asked of us. Rather, 
you must love your fellow citizen as yourself. So love in this case is the opposite of hating someone in your heart, not interrupting them when they're hurting themselves or someone else, trying to take vengeance, bearing a grudge. None of that is love. Naomi said, I've been humbled by realizing who am I to truly know what's best or right? To clarify in terms of others' choices for themselves, not human rights issues, right? Thank you, Naomi. So even though I steered into uh, um, our political divide, I wanna steer out of it right now and say that, think about this, especially in relation to the people you're closest to first. When do you walk around grumbling, pissy, uh, resentful, spending a whole lot of time thinking about how mad you are, uh, all that stuff. What a waste of time. Now, it's not like we can turn a switch, but we can turn the ship in a different direction, right? We don't have to go to the bottom floor. We can say, wait a minute. So Lotisna is that message for the people close to us so that we're not going around seething and leaking anger all the time and what a challenge that is. We have to somehow figure out how to communicate what's going on with us to the people we love. We have to do it. Even if it's gonna be challenging, hurtful, even if we're gonna say, when you do this, I don't want, you know, it makes me feel X, all that, all that kind of language. <sighs> but by extension, if we're going to practice lotisna in a country and in, in a world that's actually being devoured by gratuitous and random hate at this point. We also have another job, which is to not hate in the public sphere, to figure out how to approach each human being without hate in our heart. I wanna bless us all with that uh, intention for the new year. Here's the next one. Paul says, if you're feeling hate, how much of that is about your own self, having nothing to do with the person you're hating? Well said, I think it has everything to do with your own self. I mean, it's kind of like that, those, um, uh, 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 what's the saying about um, uh, resentment is like um, drinking poison uh, and expecting the other fellow to die. Thank you, Leah. Yeah. It's all about ourselves. This is all about ourselves. I will be not only just as effective by not acting out of hatred and resentment. I will be more effective in making the world a place I want to be in. There's just no reason not to treat people well. There's no reason. Yes, yeah, so many times in my own life, says Paul, when being negative was such a waste of time. Tell me about it. 
I'm getting better at it as I get older. I'm getting better at dropping that stuff. That doesn't mean, as I said, I mean, I was just in California in 110 degree weather, um, watching the reservoirs at these low levels, seeing smoke from fires. It's like, there's a lot to get upset and anxious about. And yet, I'm determined to continue to walk in the world with love and an open heart. Why not? Why not? Why not keep opting for that? How is our dread, our hatred, our anxiety, our rage, how is that going to help? And that's a good question without assigning with, even though we don't have control over it all the time. It's about what our intention is. These intentions do work over time. I've seen it and I feel blessed by it. Ah, Blaze says, when you're on the down elevator, push the gratitude button and the elevator can change direction. Yes, we need to make a graphic of all the buttons on our elevator that take us up or down. <laughs> it takes attention. Ah, good. Listen to this next one. Kol chayat hasadeh equals this year. Comes from Genesis chapter two, verse 19. So yud heh vav -Heh formed all the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky out of the soil and brought the human to see what the human would, the human would name each of them. And whatever the human called each one, that became their name. This is the part where uh, Adam is lonely and God says, I'll make the animals and the birds. And Adam still hadn't found the proper the, the right partner, which is when Eve gets created. That's the part of the Torah we're in right there. But I actually wanted to take this out of context and just think about all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the sky. For me this year, What I want to do, you know, I read a book, which I'm going to be talking about more in Rosh Hashanah, and I talked about in this class, uh, called Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom um, and Modern Science. I forget the subtitle, uh, by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is a botanist and a Native American. And one of the things that she highlights about her Native tradition is that they assign personhood to all creatures. That is individual worth, identity. And she does it in her book by when she writes maple, she capitalizes the M. She does that quite intentionally. When she writes um, the name of an animal or a plant, she capitalizes it trying to communicate 
what it is to confer a sense of personhood, individuality, and the value of that on every species and every individual in every species. And I'm speaking for myself now, this will be old hat to some of you who felt this way a long time. I'm not an animal person, right? I've never particularly been, I like them, but I've never been particularly, I'm not an animal person. But I was also raised just like I think all of us were to understand that humanity is unique and that we are truly superior uh, in our ability to use language and tools to transform our environment than all other creatures. And the hubris of that, which is what I was raised on, actually, I never questioned it for a long, long period. Oh, good, Sarah, we're gonna talk about naming. Um, I'm gonna come back to that, Sarah. That's very important. Um, it's only in recent years for me that I realized the hubris of my position and have slowly started cranking myself around. And, and it's occurred to me to understand that everything is sentient. And then, of course, once you take your blinders off, as many people are doing now, and you start to recognize the sophisticated, incredibly, I don't even know the words for it, of so every species from a hive of bees to uh, uh, you know elephants to um, plants and fungi interacting in the forest floor to that there's that there's maybe more kinds of intelligence than my um, uh, lauded uh, um, uh, IQ, <laughs> which was created by human beings so that, you know, though we could think we're really smart. So um, it's, I'm, I, am, uh, I am in this, in this transformation now, right now of determined to relate to the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and all the plants that grow in a different way. Um, animism, every, so here's what I was thinking. And I'm gonna talk more about this on the high holidays I expect too. I was thinking that, you know, humanity is created on the sixth day as the last creation before God rests. And we've always thought of that as the pinnacle. Like, ah, the sixth day, the everything's created and now humanity, the pinnacle of creation. And I thought, wait a minute, what if we're the last one created? What if everything's our older brother and sister? 
And I'd never thought of it that way, nor would I ever have thought of it that way if I wasn't trying to change my consciousness of the nature of all creation. So what if we're the little brother and little sister, not the pinnacle? And what if we're placed into this garden, as it says in chapter two, in order to serve it and to preserve it? So Sarah says, naming something is an aspect of dominion, control, and ownership. We are stewards of everything we name because with ownership comes responsibility. Naming is transforming. Well said. It's also paradoxical. There's a, it's, it, it's two-sided because naming can be an aspect of dominion Naming can also be an expression of relationship. Um, and, needs, and, and so it, it, I'm trying to think of Adam naming all the creatures. In every creation story I've read, you know, everything is, oh, I'm fascinated by this. The, uh, the, na the names of things. Yes, human beings use language to name things. And uh, the question is, what relationship do we take to that which we've named? Can we think of ourselves as peers sharing the earth? So that's my cutting edge right now. I am working on a lifetime of feeling like I'm at the top and that the illusion that if we give everything an individual name, like if we name Maple Maple and address Maple as hello, great Maple, then I can't relate to it as an it. I have to relate to it as a you. That's, that's Buber right there, the I-you relationship as opposed to the I-it relationship. If I give a whole species a name, that's different than giving each individual I meet a name. There's a uh, Jewish saying, an old Jewish saying, I think it's from the Talmud, that there's every living thing has an angel who hovers over it and whispers to it, grow. And I love this idea of trying to understand that every living thing has its own angel. Um, Rob says, naming can be both honorific, but also limiting, correct. Abigail says, calling to a thing or person is an act of calling forth their essence, just as God to the light. So naming versus calling, once they have a name, you can call to them. Sylvia says, when we name something, we get attached. I remember I stopped naming my koi when they kept dying and I felt lost. Wow, Sylvia, that's, you love and then you lose. Yes. Paul says, we see it as maple. Maple doesn't. We are part mineral, plant, animal, not the other way around. Yes, 
We are the little siblings of all this creation. We came here last, not first. And here was the world to feed us and sustain us. We are custodians, not owners. Everything has its place mm -hmm. and its name. Anybody else? I, I Like I said, I'm being, as always, all I got to share is where I'm at. And that's why this phrase spoke to me so deeply. Beautiful. Oh my goodness, let's do one more before we stop. This adds up to 782. By Yomer Lo Yadati. And he said, I do not know. That comes from the Cain and Abel story. Then Yodhevave said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So this is an astounding story that sets the tone for the entire Torah, which is this question of Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? You could say the rest of the Torah is an attempt to answer that question with, yes, you are. Uh, remember, we go back up to do not hate achicha. The Hebrew isn't fellow citizen. This Hebrew is because it's uh, the Hebrew in the Torah is masculine. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rather, you must take action to interrupt their sinful behavior. Otherwise, you bear some responsibility for their sin. Do not take vengeance or bear grudge against your brother. Rather, you must love your neighbor as yourself. So the answer to Cain's question is the rest of the Torah. But I was drawn to this phrase out of context, especially. Vayomer lo yadati. So let me just, and he said, I do not know. And the reason I'm drawn to that is because, oh, Sarah, thank you for joining us. See you next time. So good to see you. Um, the reason I don't know is uppermost in my mind is because since the pandemic started a year and a half ago, oh, uh, Warren says, I'm struck by the contrast in Cain's initial humility and his shift into arrogance. Ah, uh, well, I would say, Warren, his I do not know is sarcastic. I don't know. So I think he's, I think he's being impetuous the whole time. That's my own read of the sentence. Uh, yeah, Cain is like, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then God says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. What do you think, I'm an idiot? And uh, he says, because of what you did, Cain, because we can look at the Cain and Abel story in a few minutes, uh, or maybe, maybe we'll start there next time, because it's certainly pertinent for Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> but I want to focus our last few minutes on just this phrase, I do not know. Maimonides, and I cannot find the source of this quote, so it may be one of those, um, what do you call it when 
uh, there are quotes all over the internet attributed to somebody. And it turns out somebody said it 10 years ago, you know, I don't know. But Ben Sean made a very famous, a beautiful print of Maimonides with a quote from Maimonides, which I cannot find the source of. And it says, teach thy tongue to say, I do not know, and thou shalt progress. Teach your tongue to say, I do not know, and you shall progress. That is Maimonides. Uh, but since the pandemic hit, everybody, I really don't know. I could pretend that I knew a couple of years ago before the pandemic, you know, like, yeah, I'm going on vacation in July. We have our tickets. And there was like a 97% chance that I knew what I was going to be doing a few months from now. And the truth is, we never know. We could pretend that we knew because things were relatively stable, but we don't actually know. We don't know what's gonna to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's gonna happen later today. We don't know. And I found it to be so liberating this year to not know. And therefore, to hold all my plans very lightly. Not like this. And this has been for me, the biggest spiritual gift of the pandemic, right? This crappy time we're living in, this awful time, um, is that I can't hold on. If I hold on to my plans, I am almost inevitably heading for a crash, an emotional crash. But if I can make plans and say, and we'll see what happens, then I'm ready to walk more lightly and gracefully into the new year. It's not that I'm not making plans, it's that I really don't know. Who am I to know, says Naomi, make my best plans and hold them loosely with non-attachment. Here, not humility, more like I can't remember when answering. We're all learning how to live in not knowing over and over again. Naomi says, I think that is truly true, is why it feels so freeing and liberating. I'm telling you, it's a giant load off not being in charge of the future. Since it reflects the truth rather than um, this, you know, we grew up in, most of us grew up in much more stable times. And I was gonna, yeah, gonna finish college, have a career, blah, 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 blah. And a lot of it happened. Like, but at this point, I don't know. I didn't know before, but things sort of went my way. Now, I don't know. So this is spiritual liberation. It's not giving up agency. It's giving up control. Our agency is to act in the world the way we hope and hope that it'll go in the positive directions we wish. 
egotism is being pissed off when it doesn't go our way. As if we were in charge. Ah, on the other hand, uh, what is the saying when making plans? Uh, if God wills it. I'll see you next week. We can be open and expansive regardless. No reason not to. We don't know what the future holds anyway. <laughs> Why not choose not to hate? Why not choose to be open and expansive? Why not choose to treat every creature as a precious being? Why not? Because every piece of that makes us more connected, more happy, more alive, more flowing. So this is a big one for me. And I was so happy it came up in the Gematrias to acknowledge the truth that I don't and to move forward with gratitude and grace into the new year. I hope this is useful for you all. I'm once again, as I've done every year, uh, Abigail said, my dad said to always do right, to let the other guy be mean, etc." Yeah, why not? All very cool, thanks, Paul. Thanks. What a privilege I have. I'm gonna stop sharing the screen now so I can see you all. What a privilege I have to get to do this process and then share it with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for everything. Oh, you're welcome, Leah. It's such a pleasure. So I'm gonna blow the shofar and then we're going to say a prayer for healing. No, I'm gonna do it the other way around. We're going to say a prayer for healing. And we're going to say, is anyone reciting Kaddish right now? Abigail, you're still in Kaddish, right? Uh, yes. So, and Sarah. So, we're first a healing prayer. And then the Kaddish. And then we're going to blow the shofar. Because in Elul, it's customary to hear the shofar every day. To wake us up. Rosh Hashanah is coming. We're praying for Max, for Hassan Ori Michal Mepanina, for Linda Diaz, Diaz, for our Rav Miriam Yalbat Sarah, Jim Clater, Nishama Batlupa, Rav Shai Aviad Ben Balfura, Bina Bat Abraham, Ruth Hirsch, uh, Max, Robert Michalis, Thomas, Nishama, Pat, Catherine, Bunny, Catherine, Blaze, Loy, Chaika Bat Ilan, Joshua Pearl, we're with you, Joshua. I hope we are headed in a good direction. Uh, Jaya, Natan ben Yafa Panina, Moshe ben Yafa Panina. John Berman. Ah, <laughs> Ah, 
Energy of healing, wholeness, well-being, spreading to all who need it. And let us say amen. Amen. And Kaddish, Ellen, are you in a position to put it up? Rhoda Lansman. Any other names? Oh, Paul's sister, Marilyn Barr. Abigail, would you like to recite? Yes, thank you. Amen. 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 And Raquel Kalikman and Irene Gash. May their memories be a blessing. So we have the privilege of hearing the shofar. If it's easy for you to stand and you'd like to rise, I invite you to, but you don't have to. May the sound of the shofar awaken our deepest and truest selves. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 